0: Well, good morning. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful to be here at Grace Baptist Church, and uh, what a grace today this is. The Lord has brought you as a church into being, as a congregation to His glory, a covenant community of followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you have followed the Lord in obedience, you have found yourself in a new place and now in a new building, preaching the timeless truths of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a great joy to be here with my dear friend, uh, Pastor Bill Haynes. It is true that I have uh, I've been with him through many dangers, toils, and snares. And we can sing that hymn together. We have been with each other as uh, the Lord has, has uh, called us uh, to uh, various responsibilities and various things, that he has been a true friend in the gospel from the very beginning. I had a dear friend who called me one day and said, I have someone you've got to meet. And uh, when your friend says that, it's either really good or really bad. And uh, this was really, really good. And he set together a lunch. And uh, from that point on, I don't think there have been many days when Bill and I have not been in contact. And uh, I knew of what the Lord was doing in this congregation. And I've been praying for you long before I had an opportunity to be with you. And uh, I want you to know of your your, uh, pastor's uh, love and, and pride in you. I would get emails from him saying, just look at these slides, and and, and I would look at the slides, and I, I kind of saw how things are coming together. And then as he's told me of how the Lord has blessed you as a congregation, how you came together and covenanted together, and how the Lord has blessed you as you have grown together, and as you have celebrated together, and mourned together, and you've done what Christians do together in the covenant community of a biblical congregation. And I have looked forward to being with you, and so here I am. I trekked all the way from Louisville, Kentucky to be here and it is a great, great honor to be here for this day to dedicate this beautiful facility. Last night I had the the opportunity uh, to, uh, to to have a guided tour through the facility, and it's kind of like being at Disney World the day before it opened. And I got to see all the things that were being put together. and And I just want to tell you, I have this is not about a building. This is about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord gives us means towards ends, gospel ends, and the means themselves are sometimes important simply because. I often say we would do what we're called to do at Southern Seminary if we didn't have a campus. We'd teach out under trees, but we couldn't teach this many. Uh, There are certain things that you you just have to have in in a world in order to make things happen, and this is one of those things, and this is one of the best designed, most beautifully designed uh, facilities I have ever seen for a church. Uh, Let me tell you what this is a symbol of. Every single building testifies of the people who are going to inhabit it. And so you can come in, you can read a building. I teach my students. I take them sometimes on church tours and say, I want, I want you to learn how to. I want you to learn how to read a building. This building tells you what this church is about. And so you walk into a Roman Catholic cathedral. It tells you what it's about. There's a big chair over here. It's the cathedra. That's why it's a cathedral. That's the chair that the bishop sits in. And then you look and what's at the center? The center is the altar because the, the, the center of the worship is the Eucharist, which is the Mass. You walk in the building, you don't have to be told this is a Catholic church. You walk in, you can see it. it you walk into a simple Puritan chapel, you know exactly what it is. It's got seats and a teaching desk. That's all there is because that's all that's going to happen. You will not find a piano. You will not find an organ. You'll not find any of this stuff that is behind me. You will certainly not find a choir. You will simply find a table, a book, and seats. And then you can walk into all kinds of other buildings, but when you walk into this, what do you see? You see, first of all, the centrality of the pulpit. This is a place that without apology is built for the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. This is a room that is built for the fellowship of the saints. You don't have a segregation here. Everybody's together in a room. You are a congregation of covenanted Christians. You gather together. This room has been built so you can come in and be together. You can circulate outside together. You can fellowship together. But I tell you, I saw something else here, two other things I want to draw to your attention. When you come into this church, you see a priority for young people, and that's a wonderful thing to see. I enjoyed, when I was a teenager, we didn't have anything like that building. And I, it, it makes me, well, not altogether true, but it makes me at least think about what it would be like to be a teenager all over again and to have a, a church that would that would think ahead to building a facility like that. And uh, it just says welcome. It says, we know who you are and you're welcome here. The other thing I see is a great commission passion. From the photographs on the wall to the uh, Bible verses and uh, and missionary quotations of people like Charles Spurgeon that I saw in the in the youth building all those things just cry out. This is a church that is here to be gathered here in order to send people out into the world, and that's the way a New Testament church should be. My task this morning is to preach, and so I want to direct you this morning to Romans chapter one. The theme of the the Bible conference is truth. Nothing can be more important than the issue of truth, as you think about. Not only dedicating this facility, but recommissioning yourselves as a congregation in the service of Christ. But my task is to speak of contending for truth, believing in truth, and holding fast to the truth in a world that increasingly doesn't even believe in truth. There are certain touchstone passages to which we should we could turn. There are certain passages in Scripture. That compel us now. Every single word of Scripture cries out truth. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, praying to the Father, said, "Thy word is truth." He prayed that His people will be sanctified in the truth. Sanctify them, He prayed. In the truth, Thy word is truth. We believe in the the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. Every single word of Scripture inspired. Every word fully inspired. But there are certain texts we turn to for a context such as this in order to gather our grounding. In terms of the truth of the gospel, one of those is Romans chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in Romans chapter 1. And I think we'll begin reading here at verse 13. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but have thus far been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as some among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed against, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's Word. This is one of those texts that divides. There are certain texts of Scripture that that just about everyone says that they believe. And when you for instance, uh, pick up a, a book of favorite Bible verses, you're going to find lots of verses about God's love. You're going to find lots of verses about God's care. You're going to find perhaps some verses about God's, God's love for His creation. But uh, this is one of those texts that not only captures our attention, it, it divides. And, and we need to understand that every time we read a text, whether it's God is love or whether it's John three sixteen, or whether it's Romans chapter 1, we face a basic decision. Do we believe this or not? Are we going to stand on this or not? Are we going to stand on this or are we going to flinch? In John chapter 6, Jesus speaking to his disciples, spoke about himself as the bread of life. And some of them got nervous about it. And Jesus looked at them and said, does this offend you? Do you also want to go away? You see, the true church hears the word of God and knows exactly what we're hearing. We are reading here not the words of the apostle Paul. Now, Paul wrote these words, but he wrote them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, we understand that this is as if Christ is right here in this room speaking audibly to His church, and thus we receive this as God's Word. Now, this gets to another issue. How exactly do we receive God's Word? Do we receive God's Word as a horrible Word with which we're simply going to have to deal, an imposing, awful Word that we're simply going to have to obey, or Are our hearts trained to hear the word of God as words of life that we must hear in order to live, in order to flourish, in order to find the blessings of God? That's why we have to train our hearts to hear it. And these are tough words. It doesn't begin so tough. For instance, it begins, we might look at verse 16 For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. That doesn't seem so hard. And yet, you'll notice that the, the very work, the way it's put together is in a not negative. I am not ashamed. That's not the way you would be in most things. I hear you just got married. Yeah, but I'm not ashamed of my wife. <laughs> that is not going to get you very far on Valentine's Day, I, I guarantee you, that you're not going to find very many Hallmark cards they're going to say in the, not, in the category, not ashamed of. No, that, that's not going to work. Yeah, I hear you church just build a new building. Yeah, yeah, we're not ashamed of it. Now, why would you put something that way? You would put something that way if people would assume there is shame in it. Paul's writing to the church in Rome. He's writing to a church that is already suffering persecution at the hands of Rome. He's writing to a church that's made up of Gentile believers and Jewish believers who have now been gathered together in the covenanted community just as you're gathered together here and he writes to them with a language that is surprising to us. But what he means is, be bold in the gospel. There's no shame in it. There's absolutely no shame in it. You Be willing to be arrested for the cause of the gospel. Be willing to be persecuted for the cause of the gospel. Be willing even to be martyred for the cause of the gospel. Be willing to lose your job because of the gospel. Be willing to lose your home because of the gospel. Be willing to lose anything. We just sang that hymn, A Mighty Fortress, Let Goods and Kindred Go. This means we're willing to let anything go for the gospel because there's no shame in it. Why? For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Now, what we find earlier in Romans chapter 1 is his introductory material. He's greeting the congregation there. He's speaking of his love for them, of his apostolic role to them. And then he speaks to the fact that he's wanted to get to them. We began in verse 13 because the apostle Paul is making very clear that he wants to arrive in Rome. He wants to be there. He doesn't want merely to, to send them a spirit-inspired letter. He wants to be there in person. And we know that Paul eventually did arrive there. We know from the book of Acts that he was interrupted by a Macedonian vision, a call to go to Macedonia, to Greece, to preach. And so he did. But this letter is sent now in advance of his personal arrival And he wants them to know that when he arrives, he's going to arrive preaching the gospel. And he's going to be preaching the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To whom? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? Look at verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, the gospel saves. That's the most important thing about it. That's why it's a gospel. That's why it's good news. But the gospel also reveals, as we speak of the gospel, as we tell the gospel, testify of the gospel, we're speaking about more than the gospel. We're speaking about the God who saves. God reveals himself in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing we are told here is that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, which is from faith for faith. We are justified by faith alone. Salvation comes to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. Believe in what? There is no end. What? There is nothing that we contribute to our salvation. there is no way we can earn or deserve our salvation. It is entirely of grace. It is all not what we have done, but what Christ has done for us. What God did for us in Christ. And thus, the name of your church is Grace Baptist Church because it's all of grace and it's all of faith and. We're justified by faith alone, and that's the reason there's no shame in it. Now, just think about this. If, if justification were not by faith alone, then sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. That's one of the things people often don't think about. If, if our justification, if, if the basis of our justification was something other than Christ alone, then it's got to be Christ and something else, and that something else is going to have to be what we contribute to our own justification, and we could never, ever contribute enough to be saved. So there's the shame in it it's not going to work. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because in it is revealed the righteousness that is ours in Christ. This is the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only righteousness that saves. And the apostle Paul says, how can I be ashamed of this gospel? It's the gospel that reveals the righteousness of God that is ours in Christ. The righteous shall live by faith. In your pastor's study, if you haven't seen it, in his outer office, there's a painting of Martin Luther. It's by an artist by the name of Matthew Ward. Matthew Ward wanted to capture Martin Luther at the very moment in which the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to see justification by faith. Martin Luther's face is turned as he all of a sudden has the face of recognition. A light is coming through the window behind him representing the illumination of the Holy Spirit and his finger is on Romans chapter 1, verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, but there's something else revealed in the gospel that we often don't think about and that is the wrath of God. Look at verse 18. A Little less popular that preachers turn to this and make this clear. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, here's one of the realities about the gospel. The gospel is good news, but that means there's bad news. It's only good news because if we didn't have it, we'd be left with only the bad news, and the bad news is that a righteous God will punish sin. The bad news, as Paul's going to make very clear here, is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, the the world is not divided between sinners and non-sinners. It is united in the fact that every single one of us has sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who is not going to face the righteous wrath of God on that day of judgment The distinction there will be between sinners who are still dead in their trespasses and sins and facing the wrath that is going to be displayed from heaven upon all ungodliness and those who were sinners but have been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and now bear his imputed righteousness. Now, this gets to the whole issue of bad news and good news. If you go to the doctor and and you have uh, a malignancy and he loves you and decides it will hurt your feelings to tell you that, that isn't good news when he tells you you're well, because it's not true. You see that all of the Bible is actually good news. Even the bad news is good news, because it's good that we know this. It's our health that we know this. We are told that we are sinners, and the diagnosis is clear, and we desperately need to know this. Grace is in the reality that even our sinfulness is revealed to us. But it would be bad news if that were the end, if that was all that there was to it, But God reveals also the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. So the gospel reveals the wrath of God, but the gospel reveals the righteousness of God that is ours by faith. But then we're let in on something in verse 18 that is of vital importance in understanding this life. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, notice this next phrase, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Very key point here. Sinners are involved, every single sinner, every single sinner who has ever lived, from Adam and Eve right to the newest newborn on planet earth, is involved in a common conspiracy to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, conspiracy theories abound, but here's the one in the Bible that's revealed for us for our understanding. Every single human being is born a sinner and enters into this conspiracy immediately. We become co conspirators, indicted co conspirators to suppress the truth. We don't have to be told to suppress the truth. Every two year old who disobeys knows how to suppress the truth. Where did he go? He's hiding behind the couch. What's he doing? He's suppressing the truth. Where's Adam? Adam and Eve are hiding in the garden. Why are they hiding? Because they suppress the truth. Human beings are born into this conspiracy to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What does that tell you? That tells you you put all human wisdom together. What does it amount to? All of human secular wisdom is in one form or another an undisguised or a disguised part of this conspiracy to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then the Apostle Paul goes on, note very carefully, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has shown himself to every single human being. Now, you can say, how could that happen? Well, notice we're told here. In verse 20 and following, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. We're living in an age that is increasingly honest about its hatred of the truth. Now, you notice I said that very carefully. We're not now living in a time that is unique because of its antipathy to truth, its rejection of truth. That is every single human society and every single human generation that has lived since Genesis chapter 3, since the fall. But our times are unique in the sense of the openness of the declarations against truth, of the comprehensiveness of the subversions of truth, of, of the public denials of truth. But this is nothing new. This conspiracy to suppress the truth in unrighteousness is as old as sinful humanity. But you'll notice that it is suppressing the truth. It's not merely ignorance of the truth. You see, there are a good many Christians who think the world is divided between those who are ignorant and those who are knowledgeable. And there's a sense in which that's true, but hold that thought. Paul here says that the main division is between those who are ignorant and know it and ignorant and don't know it. Because the reality is, we all know we just don't want to know. You following that? Paul's logic is really clear. God has revealed himself to all persons. You say, how? Well, Paul explains it here. In nature. All of nature cries out the existence of God. It is simply beyond our imagination that you could look at the complexity, the beauty, the grandeur of creation and believe that it just happened. Creation itself cries out the existence of a creator. The heavens, says the psalmist, are telling the glory of God. Now, I engage all these people on various worldviews regularly About uh, two years ago, a woman came out with a book, a scientist, on why children reject evolution. And we're talking very young children, all right? Now follow her. If you're an evolutionist, you've got a big problem. Preschoolers are not evolutionists. They don't come out of the womb evolutionists, they come out creationists. And, And so this scientist was writing about the frustration of having to take, say, middle school students and transfer them from being little tiny creationists to more grown-up evolutionists. And she said, here's the problem. Children appear to be pre-programmed by evolution to believe in design. <laughs> so she said, straightforward. Yeah, she said. She said, "This is it." She said, "Children tend to look at the world and think there must have been someone who did this. They are committed to the idea of agency, which means someone had to do this, and, and so they look at this, and so they make the inference, which is so natural to them, that someone did this. And so you're going. She's writing to educators. Saying, you have to understand this, so you can help to transfer them from the understanding of of, of intentional design of a creator to." a naturalistic accident. Well, good luck. Why are children pre-programmed to believe in design? Because every single human being is pre-programmed to believe in design. But why? Because there's a design. <laughs> I mean, who can look at this and believe there wasn't a design? And, 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 and by the way, I engage these evolutionists all the time, and they are so wrapped up in their their whole system, they have to have an evolutionary explanation for everything, including why people believe in evolution and why people don't. And this is driving them absolutely crazy. And the apostle Paul didn't wait for Charles Darwin. He said in the first century, writing to Christians in the first generation. For God has revealed himself in creation such that there is no one who doesn't know. But it's not just in the external world of creation. The Bible makes very clear, as Paul will affirm in the next chapter, that God has also revealed himself internally to us in what we call conscience. There is no one who doesn't know that there's a God in the conscience. Now, our conscience is a part of the image of God. Those of you who have dogs know that your dog is made to the glory of God. Every atom and molecule is made to the glory of God, including your dog. In fact, God's glory is in the dogness of the dog. I understand God's glory is also in the catness of the cat, but it's easier for me to see it, I'll admit, in the dogness of the dog. (laughs) And so you go to the dog, what does the dog do? The dog acts like a dog, right? And God's glory is in a dog being a dog. If your dog actually brought you the newspaper, that's nice. But if it brings you a cup of coffee, that's weird. (laughs) But you go home, and you love this dog, and this dog just shows the glory of God, and it's dogness. But you go home, you've never walked in the front door, and the dog come up to you and said, just wait just a minute. I want to apologize in advance. You're going to find a mess. I feel horrible about it. Uh, I'm heartbroken about what this is going to mean to you. No, what does the dog do? The dog comes up. I don't know who did that. Why? He, the dog doesn't have a conscience. I, I, I love watching these. I don't know if it's a male thing. I think it might be because I'll notice that whenever, whenever like if you're in the, the uh, department store you in Walmart or something, the TV's on, when one of these things is on, it's always, it's always males looking at it. It's men and boys looking at it. It's the Discovery Channel or it's the Animal Planet. It's when some predator is going after the prey. And you notice that lion and you see that gazelle and you know it's not, it's not going to, it's a popsicle. And you see it, it looks so sweet, and then all of a sudden you see that lion and it comes up and it just devours this thing. And you've never had the lion look up and go, I don't know where this comes from, this violence in me. (laughs) Why? Because he's just a lion. That's what lions do. But we are different. We're made in God's image. We know this. Why does that two-year-old hide behind the sofa? Because he knows someone saw him do that. But you know what? We become more sophisticated sinners as we grow older. We grow more sophisticated in our conspiracy to hide the truth in unrighteousness. All around us, if you want to understand the secular society around us, you want to understand what you see on the cable news channels, you want to understand what you read in the newspaper, you want to understand what you hear as your neighbors talk, it is the conspiracy to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You want to hear all the the kinds of renegotiations of morality going on around us. You hear all the debates about things that don't even seem plausibly debatable, and you wonder, how can that happen? It's because we have reached an advanced stage of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Paul says it's clearly revealed, so that there will be no one without excuse. I get this asked, asked this question, I go to college campuses, I go wherever, I always asked the question, what about the man on the island who's never heard the gospel? Well, our first answer is, he needs the gospel. But I say, well, how can God judge him? Well, it's because he knows God. He has sinned against the one he knows by the very conscience planted within him he sinned against. Now you notice the indictment of humanity here. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. This is why we are well diagnosed as idol making people we are our hearts are idol making factories we we suppress the truth and unrighteousness we do not worship the god who would judge us and we instead make a god who uh, won't judge us this is the oprification of theology in modern america this is the conversation about the god who just loves everybody wants everybody like rodney king just to get along this is, the, this is the God who, who, who just wants, he's like a kindly grandfather up in the sky who wants everybody to get therapy in order they feel better about themselves. The, the, the God who, who's always renegotiating his moral code such that, oh, I know you did your very best. The God of the Bible knows our very best. It's called filthy rags. The, the, the God of the Bible knows our need for therapy. He knows that therapy, however, won't be enough. That's why... He sent His Son to die on the cross as our Savior. We don't need a therapist for our souls. We need a Savior. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And here's where the Apostle Paul is writing in a way that Christians, we Christians here in the 21st century, may underread. Let me warn you about this passage. It's very easy to look at this passage and think it's about somebody else. Paul's writing to Roman Christians, and he's writing about all of us. Who's involved in this conspiracy to suppress the truth and unrighteousness? Every single one of us. Uh, who, who is in this indictment? Every single one of us. It's not about someone else. It's about all of us. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Me? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. I don't have any idols in my house. No, my idols are all safely in my heart and in my mind. You don't have to have an idol on your kitchen table to be an idolater. You look in that crib, you see that innocent little thing you think so innocent, there's an idolater right in there. He starts out an idolater. I want you to bring me the six-month-old who feels guilty about waking you up in the middle of the night because he's hungry. No, we are born idolaters. Notice then what follows, words of judgment. In verse 24, "...therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie." and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. A couple things to think about here. I want you to note with me that there is a triplicate pattern here. Notice very carefully in Romans chapter 3, three times we're going to be told God gave them over, and three times we're going to be told that it is the result of an exchange. Let's look at the exchanges first. The first one we read, Because, as you see here, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what's the exchange? The truth of God for a lie. When I grew up, there was a show on television called Let's Make a Deal. It was one of the stupidest shows ever on television. If you ever see it on a rerun, you can't believe that you were ever stupid enough to have watched that. But why did you watch it? You watched it because there's something deeply, deeply, almost magnetically fascinating to human beings about making a choice It could be better or it could be worse. You're going to go behind curtain A, or do you want what's in the box? Well, what's ever behind the curtain is probably bigger, but what's under the box might be better. And you look at that and you say, that's the stupidest show I've ever seen. And then you listen to yourself in the course of the day. You say, I'm, I'm trapped in one giant set of let's make a deal. I go through my day thinking, do I want what's behind curtain D? Or what's under box A? I don't know. We do know this. Sinful human beings have made the worst exchange imaginable. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We were given the truth of God. But every single one of us says Isaiah has gone his own way. All we like sheep have gone. In our own way, we've all done this. The second exchange is found here too. Now notice the intensity of this. You'll see it in the next paragraph in verse 26. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Yes, that's exactly what you think it is. Let's go quickly to this third exchange. You'll see here that they exchanged, the men here, natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. In the Greek, it's the same thing, three exchanges. Exchange the truth of God for a lie. Women exchanging that which is natural for a relationship with other women. Men exchanging that which is honorable for relationships with other men. There's so much to be said here, but one of the most important things we can say here is it is exactly what it looks like. There's absolutely no way out of this. Paul is lifting up homosexuality as exhibit A of what this exchange of the truth of God for a lie looks like. In other words, he's saying if you want to know how devious human beings are, then just look at something that is so unnatural. That's the word he uses twice. It's so unnatural as homosexuality, female homosexuality and male homosexuality. Three times he mentions this exchange, and then three times he uses the language, God gave them over, the strongest words of judgment found anywhere in Scripture. Therefore, God gave them over, God gave them up in verse 24, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then you see also in verse 28, and since they did not acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, this conspiracy to suppress the truth and unrighteousness means that we are constant moral renegotiators, such that we will look at something that is self-evidently sin, and then we'll say, hey, let's just conspire together to call it something else. Several years ago, a moral philosopher wrote an article in which he said, the, the, the way that this works, this is a very, very important argument. He says, the way that it works is that, first of all, a sin starts out recognized as a sin. The second stage is we euphemize it, which means we use a different word for it, a word that doesn't sound so bad. So we will not call it adultery anymore. We'll call it an extramarital affair. Once you move from adultery to extramarital affair, you you think you're saying the same thing, but you're actually not saying the same thing. And and after you euphemize it, you theorize it. So now you say, well, maybe it's not as bad as it looks. Maybe there's are sociological and psychological and different categories we could bring in in terms of our understanding, so it's not as bad as it looks. So you, you name it, and, and then you euphemize it, and then you theorize it, and then you embrace it. And you can see how that pattern works. That's how the conspiracy to suppress the truth and unrighteousness works. This exchange is a wicked thing to see. It's a hard thing for us to take because it, it's presented to us in such straightforward terms. Now, I want you to note something here with me because this is where conservative Christians can be right in all the wrong ways. And sometimes when you're right in all the wrong ways, you end up being wrong. The question is, does the Bible here, in Romans chapter 1, In this great epistle about the gospel, does it deal straightforwardly with the sinfulness of homosexuality? Yes, it does. There is absolutely no way out of this. Not only does it deal with the sinfulness of homosexuality, it deals with the sinfulness of homosexuality by lifting it up as the visible thing we could see if we want to understand what the conspiracy to suppress the truth and unrighteousness looks like, what indeed the evil exchange of humanity, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, looks like. So, we as conservative Christians, are obligated by what God has told us in the Bible comprehensively to understand the sinfulness of homosexuality. But if we are not careful, we're going to read this passage as if it's about homosexual sinners and then the rest of us, when it's not. It's about all of us. In other words, every single one of us is a sinner. Homosexuals are not in a different sinful category. That just draws our attention to the fact that we will, in our own invention of sinfulness, come up with just about anything. You see, we're all in here. And the Apostle Paul wants to make very clear that none of us thinks we're out of this. Now, there's another way conservative Christians mess this text up. I've heard many, many preachers get up and say, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. America, if you don't repent and humble yourselves before God, God's going to give America over. Well, it's too late. This is Genesis 3. God gave humanity over. He wasn't waiting for Benjamin Franklin and George Washington. This isn't something that might happen. This is something that did happen. That The God giving over, God giving over, God giving over happened... In what we read in Genesis chapter 3. So we don't read this as something that might happen. This happened. And we don't read this as if it's about somebody else, it's about us. And the reality is that in any congregation of any size, there are people, if they felt like it was safe, would admit to you as a church, I struggle with this, I struggle with that, I struggle with the other. And one of the ways the church stands fast to the truth, it thinks, without standing fast to the gospel, is that we merely say we believe in the the sinfulness of homosexuality, which we are obligated to say, without saying, hey, you need to understand, we believe in the sinfulness of everybody, and we are first in line. And this is where the apostle Paul steps on our toes. You'll notice the list here. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malicious. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient parents. Anyone feeling safe here yet? Foolish. Oh, well, there you go. Faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's not about some people. That's about all of us. You look at that little critter in the crib. Who is he? Uh, evil. Covetous, malicious, murderer, strife, slanders, haters of evil, disobedient to parents. Ruthless, that sweet little thing in the crib, you bet, born that way, natural-born killer right there. That's what makes the gospel such good news. It's the only way out of this. It's the only way out of it for the one who has exchanged the natural use for the unnatural. It's the only one who is a way out of it for the one who is excused, has exchanged obedience for disobedience. It's the only one, the only way out of it for the one who has exchanged satisfaction for covetousness. It is the only way out of it for the one who has exchanged the truth of God for a lie, which is every single one of us. We're the people of truth not because we're smart enough to have seen it, not because we're discerning enough to define it, not because we are morally superior to have embraced it. We're the people of truth because we have been saved by grace alone and because we've been saved by the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we've been saved by the one who loves us enough that he not only saves us, but he instructs us in righteousness and he's given us the word of truth in order that we may know him and we may know what leads to godliness and we may know what leads to human flourishing and order we may know what will lead to happiness in life, in marriage, in this life and in the life to come, in missions and in ministry and in deployment, in work and in service. If we're not the people of truth, we're not Christians. And this means we have to stand in the truth. And we need to stand in the truth with a proper humility. Now, here's an improper humility. I don't know. That's faithlessness. The proper humility is, I do know, but I don't know it because I was so smart. I know it because God loved it. The God loved us enough that he revealed himself to us. I'm, I'm not morally superior to you. That's the way we as Christians lose our credibility to the world because the devil has a way of making very, very clear that Christians are not morally superior. Now, in Christ, we are to be sanctified and live unto holiness such that Christ is glorified in us, but left to our own devices, we are not morally superior. Not when you look at it in a biblical perspective, because there are many things we do not do that notorious sinners do, but then we sit back in prideful satisfaction of the fact we don't do it, and we sin by pride. There's no way out of it, except the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're living in an age that increasingly hates the truth and makes it ever more clear. The conspiracy against truth we need to recognize is not a new thing, but it can become newly intensive. And we do see that this process of giving over means that humanity involved in this conspiracy of suppressing the truth can become ever more adept at it. And there are certain ages in which it seems that virtually everyone has become an expert in suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You take the category of sin in our contemporary society, we have an entire realm of experts trying to argue that it's not sin at all. We have people that will go on all the talking head shows in order to argue that it's not sin at all. We have educators who will educate that it's not sin at all. We have philosophers that will philosophize that it's not sin at all. We have, we have child-rearing experts that will tell you it's not sin at all. And when you reach the point where this suppression of the truth in unrighteousness becomes so self-fulfilling that people actually believe that it's the truth, they have convinced themselves it is the truth. Why? Because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We're not morally superior because we know the truth. It's God's grace that we know the truth. But we're the people that have to stand in the truth. And that means we have to stand in all the truth. But it also means we do so because we have been redeemed by the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Paul began this particular argument by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And Now we understand why. There's no way out of this. There is no escape except the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's why we're here. That's why this church is here. The church isn't here because we like to get dressed up and meet together on Sunday mornings. This church is here because we are people who've been saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're here because we know that God did for us in Christ what we cannot do for ourselves. That Christ is God's very son that God sent him in order to live among us, to live a sinless life, and then to die on the cross, to shed his blood, to die in our place, bearing the just penalty for our sins. We know that God raised him from the dead, so there's now salvation in his name, such that the gospel means that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and as Paul will later say in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's the truth. We're going to find out pretty quickly where every church is on just about every doctrine because the pressure of the world is coming on us with such increasing pressure that everyone's going to know where everybody stands. And at the end of the day, the true church is going to be revealed by the fact it's willing to suffer for the truth even as it contends for the truth. It's willing to bear indignity for the truth even as it preaches the truth. Why? because we get to see the truth that people are saved by this gospel, for there is no other. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for this gospel. And we pray that even now the preaching of your word will become the occasion whereby you will sovereignly use your word to reach hearts such that if there's anyone here within the hearing of my voice, who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Father, we pray that you will open their hearts to understand, you'll open their eyes to see, open their ears to hear, such that they may know that the deepest need of their heart, the deepest need of their lives is to be made right with you, and there's only one way, and that is through belief and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may this congregation be ever ready to receive those who come to you by faith and celebrate that as the angels in heaven celebrate when even one sinner comes home, that the great glory you reveal of yourself as yourself as Savior. Father, we pray that you'll use this time, even as this church meets, to use this building to your glory. And we pray that what has begun here to your glory will continue to your glory to the end. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.